Good afternoon. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon so we can share some interesting case stories and examples with you so that you can understand how to help yourself, your family, your company, your employees, etc. Joining me for today's conference call are my two esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Adam Rosen, Assistant Managing Attorney and a member, and TJ, uh, who's the coordinator for our non-immigrant department, another brilliant colleague, who, and together we will share some stories, as I said earlier. Uh, the goal is really to help you, whether you're an individual, a family person, you're for your friends, for your neighbors, for your business, for your company, so that you can see the kinds of situations that we encounter, the diverse challenges, how we can navigate those complex legal landscapes, and most importantly, be there to support you uh, in your business, in your family, whether you're an individual, for your neighbor, friend, etc. So again, these stories not only share, as I said, our knowledge, our expertise, our in-depth years and years and decades of experience in processing cases and doing cases and thinking creatively and outside the box, but we go back to the core values of our firm, our vision, our mission, our values of truly making a difference for each person, each family, each business, so that the world can be a better place. We again are sharing some of these stories, success stories, so that you can see how you can support, how you can work and support your family, your employee, etc., with our different methodologies, our approaches, the personalized care that we extend to each and every single person, each and every single case, each and every single life that we are entrusted to be able to protect, help, and guide. So we hope as we go through these stories, you'll be able to understand and appreciate what we do and how we do it differently than pretty much 99.9% .9 of the people just because our goal is our focus and our goal is to take good care of people. So with that, I'm going to invite, I guess, TJ, um, or maybe Adam. Adam, how about if I invite you to talk a little bit about some of the NUNC pro tongues or NPTs as we call them. What does that mean? How does it work? And maybe then TJ can share a wonderful story or two with us. Adam, take sure. it Sure. Sure, I'd love to, Sheila. So, Nunc Pro Tonk, or NPT, um, as it's sometimes referred to, is Latin. It means now for then. Um, that, that phrase is not actually in the law, but that's basically what's happening, and so that's how um, we all refer to it. It's an exception that lets a person file and request their status even when they're not in status at the time of filing. And so this can work for somebody who needs an ex who should have filed an extension of status or should have filed a change of status. It works out differently, but it's basically the same same rule. And in order to qualify for getting this benefit approved, you have to meet four basic requirements. One is that you show you failed to file on time because of extraordinary circumstances beyond the applicant or petitioner's control. The, the delay is um, suitable with the circumstances, so the, there's a logical reason why you're doing now and didn't do it sooner, so it makes sense. Um, the 
individual has not otherwise violated their status, that you're still a, um, a bona fide, a good faith non-immigrant, and that you're not subject to deportation or removal proceedings. Because if you are in deportation or removal proceedings, this is not um, available even if the other requirements are met. So since it's discretionary, it means that USCIS doesn't have to give you this benefit even if you meet all of these um, elements. Um, it's basically, they check off the boxes and then decide, should we give it to you or, or not? Um, and so in our experience, we've seen many cases that we um, have come through our office. And fortunately, in many of these cases, we have been able to successfully present um, clients' cases to USCIS in order to fix things for them. We're going to invite TJ now to share a little story or two, some case examples, because we do them all the time, unfortunately, when people come to us saying, whoops, I forgot to file my H-4 extension, my H-1, I, didn't, I traveled, I got an old I-94 card, any gazillion situations that we deal with. So take it away, TJ. All right. Thanks, Sheila. Yeah. Unfortunately, we, we do see this all too often. Um, and, you know, the story that I will go over is, is also a, a fact pattern that we, you know, unfortunately happens all too often. So we recently had an individual, I'll call them the H-1B employee and their company, the H-1B employee-er, uh, came to us because the H-1B employee was out of status. So specifically, the employee had previously been on their 60-day grace period after the termination of their prior H-1B job. So their employer um, worked with another attorney. This is an attorney who wasn't experienced in immigration law to prepare this H-1B filing change of employer for this H-1B employee and with the intent to file it and have it be received by USCIS um, during this person's 60-day uh, grace period. However, the, the attorney that was helping them prepare this, this H-1B filing didn't realize that there were multiple errors on the actual H-1B forms. Um, certain improper boxes were checked, uh, pages were missing. Um, so despite all these errors, they still filed the H-1B petition with uh, USCIS. Um, this actually led uh, USCIS to reject the filing in the mailroom. So USCIS never actually, uh, an officer never actually got the case to actually look at it and, and approve or deny it. It didn't even make it that far. It got returned in the mailroom um, because of these errors. And by the time that that H&B filing got returned and, and re received back by the H&B employer, this individual's 60-day grace period was un unfortunately over. Um, so therefore, uh, they were out of status. Um, so this, they, they came to us asking for assistance, um, asking for advice uh, in, in terms of what to do next. And because we've seen this situation frequently, we said that the, the NPT, the non-protonc, was the best option because this person was out of status and their grace period had expired. So we wanted to show that mainly that the, the failure to file within the grace period was due to extraordinary circumstances beyond the control of the H-1B employer. Um, so what we did was we gathered some facts surrounding the situation, uh, gathered some, some evidence, emails, uh, correspondence with the attorney, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we prepared an H-1B petition. Uh, we included a non-protonc argument.
Um, so there's, and I get this, asked this question a lot, is like, what box do I check for the NPT? How do I do that? Well, there's no specific format or, or method to actually make the non-protunct request. So what we generally do is we include a memorandum uh, as an attachment oh. to the HMD forms. So, I mean, that's really, really helpful, right? What you just said and explained with TJ and the entire non-immigrant team really was able to showcase the case explaining what happened and how it happened. And it was, a, as TJ just explained, it's discretionary. So there's no guarantee the USCIS would approve it. In this case, we even included an entire section addressing the humanitarian considerations to explain why the USCIS should exercise favorable discretion, which is warranted in this case. Uh, we also explain, for example, that the H-1 employee had, so you look at each fact and each circumstance and each situation and come up with clever, good legal arguments and factual arguments to request why an exception should be made, why the non-protunct should be approved, etc. And unfortunately, the prior lawyer had not totally messed up, didn't understand what they were doing, made mistakes, made errors, causing the entire file to be rejected. We wouldn't have been in that place, but be at that as it may, the, the creative legal team sought to sat together, brainstorm. They pointed out, for example, in that particular case, there was a young child uh, who was not, as, was not able to maybe go back to the home country, even though the child was born there, because the child was not comfortable. Sometimes the children have health-related issues going back to certain countries because they're, you know, we want them, they're successful, they're thriving, they're doing well in school here, etc. and the extreme hardship it would cause to force the child to have to leave the home and family and school and friends, um, you know, extended people, not the immediate family, obviously, uh, and return back to a country which the child is completely unfamiliar with. Uh, and then you make other other issues. So each case you look at very specifically to see if there's some type of an exception where we can include a clear story, a picture, analysis of why the nunc pro should get approved. And multi-law firm actually prepares the memo. So we put everything together, including the nunc pro the evidence, the documents, the information, whether it's sworn affidavit statements, documents, and then we actually filed the H-1B via premium processing. In that particular example, I think within 10 days, we received the electronic approval. Obviously, the employer, the employee, everyone were thrilled beyond words. And the bottom line, we were able to help the employer, the employee, and the family stay here and get the successful outcome that they were looking at. So that's one example of nunk pro tunk. The other one is lost priority dates and how at the Muti Law Firm, we help to get them back and what we do. So Adam, I'm going to invite you to share some uh, examples of stories of what's allowed. Sure, Sheila. So we've seen, we've seen these issues about lost priority dates come up um, relatively often and, and in different ways. Um, so one example that we, we had that um, 
was I think particularly novel. Um, the client came to us. He had um, he was in H-1B status, so he wasn't worried about his status. He had had an I-140 approved EB-2, and like many people, when the priority dates moved forward for EB-3, his employer filed the EB-3 downgrade petition based on the same PERM, same requirements in order to file the 45 application. But once the I-140 was filed, so the immigration looked at the EB-3 petition and issued an RFE about the education equivalency because he had um, gotten his EB-2 case based on a master's degree equivalency with a three-year bachelor's followed by a two-year master's, which used to be um, okay, but stopped being okay after a number of years. And, and it's been a long time since it's been okay, but this particular individual had the EB-2 approval and now USCIS was revisiting it. And not only did they issue an RFE on the EB-3 petition, they also issued a notice of intent to revoke on his approved EB-2 I-140 petition. So the employer at the time first responded to the NOR to try um, and fix the problem there, but it didn't work and immigration revoked the I-140. So they, the company decided to go ahead and withdraw the EB-3 petition and this particular client, he, he left and changed employers. And his new employer was doing a perm case for him. But he had children and was concerned about the priority date and um, how long he would have to wait and how that would impact his children. So he came to us looking to see if there was a way to get it back. And so we sued USCIS arguing that because that even though it was revoked, even though it was revoked with immigration saying that it was a mistake for it to be approved, since the reason for the revocation was a change in policy that happened after the I-140 petition was originally approved, we argued that it was unlawful to retroactively apply that policy to take away the priority date because the new rules that came into effect after 2017, they did say that USCIS can take it away for revocation and you lose the priority date if it is, if there's fraud or misrepresentation, or if there was a material error, and the so what we argued here is that there was no material error. It was a decision that immigration made that no longer are we going to accept that three-year bachelor's plus two-year master's equals a master's degree. We're now going to say that it's equivalent to a bachelor's degree. So just because you've made a change in policy and you've decided you're go not going to accept a certain set of degrees as equivalent doesn't mean that that was a material flaw in the original approval. So you could, because revocation is discretionary, we argued that basically you can revoke a case for any reason. It doesn't have to be a material problem. It doesn't have to be any problem. It could be just because, you know, USCIS wakes up one morning and decides we want to revoke your case. So um, we made that argument and uh, it worked. USCIS um, approved our client's new I-140 petition and gave him back his old priority date. And so um, that was very exciting that we were able to help um, overcome that, that issue of the, uh, the loss of the priority date. We, our client asked us at the time if there was anything we could do with the EB-3 petition. The problem um, is that the employer had withdrawn it and you can't sue immigration over a revocation. So, um, the, you know, that was all we could do, but still the, getting the priority date back a lot in the situation was, um, was, a, was a great success and we were very happy to help him. Thank you so much, Adam. Oh my God, that's really, I mean, I'm putting myself in the place of that family and 
what they went through and literally what you guys did appears to be like you pulled a rabbit out of a hat. It was smart. It was brilliant. It was creative, original, uh, you know, really. I mean, I think 19 out of 100 law firms, probably 99 wouldn't even take this case, would say, sorry, pack up, leave, go, or you're stuck with you filing new priority date. But always look at other options. And when I say this, you yeah. know, you wouldn't even be doing some of these things if you had come for example, in many cases to the multi-law firm right in the beginning because with the other case that we just talked about with multiple errors and filing the petition or whatever, there are times we proactively are much more aggressive in taking care so that the, a lot of the mistakes that happen won't occur. But if the government changes the rule, the policy, the interpretation, we still try to figure out ways how we can help our clients. Thank you so much for sharing that, Adam. And now let's jump to you, TJ, because I guess you're going to introduce a story by talking about two, four, Section 245C2, which is basically filing the adjustment of status, the no-fault exception. So share a little bit, and I think between TJ and Adam, they're going to really share some more interesting, fabulous stuff. Take it away, TJ. All right. Thanks, Sheila. So, so uh, you know, this this case that I'm going to talk about was my introduction to the Murthy Law Firm. Um, it was November 2010, and I had just started. Um, and they go, here you go. Here's a notice of intent to deny um, uh, an I-485 for an individual um, who, who had been out of status for a, a very long time prior to filing his, his I-485 application. So we we needed to establish that you know the just, no fault. Just the, to clarify, of, though, just to clarify, we may have given that, but we had a whole team of lawyers supporting, guiding, mentoring, making sure that we work as a team to guide, support. Because I don't want someone saying, "Oh my God, that was a complex case to give somebody." But yes, we work as a team, and our goal always well, is to support. Sheila, because we do them, because we do, we have been able to help. Uh, people so often with this kind of, with this kind of argument, TJ was able to come to multiple attorneys to ask them, what do I do in this situation? And we were also able to give him um, examples of other cases so he could review them and learn how to structure this this case. Exactly. Thank you for that. Thank you. Right. I, I certainly remember tons and tons of questions sitting in one of the attorney's offices just going over everything. Um, going over the evidence, going over the requirements, and then using multiple samples uh, to to draft the the actual response to the NOR notice intent to revoke. So what we essentially had to do is we needed to show that the inaction of another individual or organization um, designated by regulation to act on behalf of the individual and over whose action the individual had no control. Um, if the the inaction is acknowledged by that other individual, so in this situation. Uh, the the I-45 applicant, the the individual, um, had been out of status for a, a long period of time. I don't recall exactly how long, um, because he was he was in H-1B status, and his company hired an attorney to file his extension of status. And again, like my prior story, this attorney screwed up. Um, this attorney included the incorrect filing fees with the H-1B, and it got rejected. It got rejected, and by by rejected. I do mean not denied, uh, but it never even made it to the adjudicator. It, it got returned. Um, by the time it got returned, um, th this individual's status, H-1B status, had expired. Thank you so much, TJ, for that information. So now, Adam, I know you can give a little more context and background about what does 
Section 245C2 mean and how it works and whatever you can provide to showcase, again, thinking outside the box, being proactive instead of reactive, taking good care of people. Take it away. Right. So so 245C2 is a section of that relates to adjustment of status, the 45, and it says that if you have failed to maintain um, your status or work without authorization, then you're not eligible for adjustment for approval. Now, a lot of people might be familiar, especially in the employment base, um, about 245K that says if since your last admission to the United States you, and you've maintained your status and as long as it's, you don't have a violation of more than 180 days, then um, you still qualify. Unfortunately, there are some times where you have more than 180 days, and, and oftentimes it's something that people don't necessarily realize until later in time because of what's happened and what they've believed things to be okay. I mean, they may they may be working in the incorrect location, they may not have been paid the required wage, and these are things that they thought they were doing correctly, they thought everything was as allowed by law. So the law also has a what we call a parenthetical exception, and basically says that even if you have this violation and, and you don't 245K doesn't work for you. If you can show that it was through no fault of your own, that you can still qualify and immigration can still approve your 45 application. Now they have some regulations and one of the, and so two of the things that they require, which are really the hardest requirements to show is that there is somebody who's who is legally responsible and they've acknowledged their failure. So the example that is in the law is for example, with a, an F1 student where there's an issue and the DSO who is legally responsible for things like the SEVIS record and such, Admit, acknowledges that there that there was a fault. So depending on the situation, depending on the case, there are arguments in trying to get a for an attorney or for an employer who's legally responsible. Um, so depending on the scenario, you sort of you can present your case based on whether it's an attorney or an employer that's involved, or if there's another person. But then you also need to have that legal responsibility piece, and then the acknowledgement. So. Typically, when you think about an acknowledgement, somebody is, you think about somebody actually saying something that, yes, I did this or I didn't do this or it's my fault. But, and so we've done that sometimes and, and it's working with the, either the employer or the former attorney to include a statement that they're comfortable with signing that says, this is what, um, this is what happened. However, sometimes nobody's willing to provide it. So we actually were able to come up with an argument that called constructive acknowledgement, where a person is sent a detailed statement or just, you know, whatever it is that explains what happened and what didn't happen. And we ask them for a response. And if there's no response, nothing at all, we make the argument that showing what we've the steps we've taken, we make the argument that in fact this person has by not objecting to what we've sent to them that they are constructively um, admitting to what we have said. So if the person disagrees, you know you really can't make that argument. But oftentimes people just don't respond because they don't want to say anything. Um, and in, in that case, we're able to make that argument that even though we don't have something specifically where they signed on the dotted line admitting to having done something wrong, if they're not saying anything, we can argue that, you know, if there was something incorrect, they would have disputed it. And so um, that those are things that we've been able to, that we've come up with over the years and that we've been able to use. Um, a big part of this kind of 
this kind of argument um, for the, the no fault is depending on the particular facts. So different people have different types of presentations that are made. Um, some are successful, unfortunately, some are not. But um, that's why, you know, when we do this, one of the things that we always do is we pull as many details and as many facts as we can in order to create a complete picture so that we have everything that might possibly there and see what we can do to pull together and create this picture for immigration to understand that, yes, there's a violation, but no, it's not this person's fault. Actually, the, the arguments and what you just said, I thought that was absolutely brilliant, creative, unusual, because a lot of people and a lot of companies, again, don't use constructive acknowledgement, constructive. And even I thought, you know, if the person is silent, like you use this argument of constructive acknowledgement, but even if they challenge one small part of it, say, yeah, 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 quietly, they don't reply six topic points, but reply one right. small point, say, well, no, you didn't contact me on Monday, you contacted me on Tuesday or Thursday, that means right. they agree to everything else, which is even stronger, uh, because exactly. now you know they not only got the email, they responded acknowledging everything else. So, again, being creative, being clever, being astute, again, looking at the big picture, and in all of our cases, you know, we have 10, 15, 20 lawyers looking at a particular issue. The client is in charge one extra dollar for that extra time. It's the flat fee billing, but our goal is to really take good care and find solutions and hold, uh, hold their hand, provide them guidance, take good care and find solutions. And again, when people say, oh, so we only come to you for the complex cases, I'm like, no, you come before so you don't become a complex case. It's way less expensive. Prevention is cheaper than cure. You come to us in the beginning for your H1 and green card, so we're not having to spend thousands of dollars cleaning it up and keeping fingers crossed and praying that the government agrees with the discretionary argument that we are putting forth on your behalf. So with that, let's go to the next kind of case examples that we talk about, uh, which is you know examples of weird situations where, you know, how can we get an extension, a six-year H-1 extension in some cases where the law actually may have some clear mandate not to approve the extension after? So as most of you know, uh, an H-1B gets the six years on H-1 status unless, of course, there's a labor certification filed a year ago or the I-140 petition is appro approved. Uh, you know, the, the labor certification has to be filed 365 days prior to the end of the sixth year in order to get the one-year H-1 extension. And on the other hand, if the I-140 petition is approved, then um, the person can get the three years unless that person's individual priority date has been current for a year or longer. And then according to the USCIS guidance, the person is technically not eligible to file the 485 or apply for an immigrant visa because they're no longer eligible for that one-year extension, even though you're allowed the one-year each time, you know, uh, under that scenario. So the one exception, of course, is if you, as, if you as an individual can show that establish that the failure to file the I-485 or the immigrant visa at the U.S. consulate was due to circumstances beyond your control, right? Circumstances beyond the individual's control. So we have actually a, maybe a, a story or two that I'm going to invite TJ to share with 
us on this topic. So, TJ. Thanks, Jella. So this is kind of an, an issue that, that lay hidden for a while with, you know, priority days being, uh, you know, not so old and, and things like that. Um, it, and it, it started to pop up when the priority days become, you know, the priority days really, really moved. Um, so then you saw a lot of individuals who, who had an, uh, you know, an I-140 approved and they became current. But that I-140 was from, you know, 2012. And they, that job was long gone, and they, you know, didn't have a, a new I-140 job. Um, so they couldn't file their, their 45 application within a year. So then all of a sudden, they were not eligible for, for an H-1B extension past the six years. Um, and, we, and we saw that that really came to the forefront um, with, you know, one, the recent tech layoffs, and prior to that, the COVID layoffs. Um, so many of those individuals they were probably with their I-140 employer at that time, but they were laid off, unfortunately. Then the prior dates jumped, but they couldn't file their 45 application. They did end up, you know, ultimately finding a new employer. But when it comes time to file their extension, they were no longer eligible because their prior date had been current for more than a year. Um, and they never filed their 45 because obviously the 45, uh, you know, the, the uh, I-140 job, was no longer available. So we had one specific situation where um, an employee and an employer came to us. Um, you know, the, the H&B employee had almost used up their six years in H&B status. During the pandemic, they were laid off from their H&B job, which was also their I-140 job. I believe his prior date was 2012, somewhere around then. Um, and they thought they had found a new employer. Um, and the new employer, you know, got the H&B approved for them. This was, you know, they were still eligible for one-year extension at that time. Then later, their priority date did become current, um, and it had been current for over a year. So then they came to us to file the extension, and they were no longer eligible for the, the extension anymore um, because their priority date had been current for over a year, but they didn't file their 45 application um, or apply for an immigrant visa. Um, so they, you know, unless we could establish that, um, the exception had been met in this case, in other words, the exception being the failure to file the 485 or immigrant visa was due to circumstances beyond their control. I don't make the diff, you know, differentiate that from the NPT, which is extraordinary circumstance. I think that's kind of relevant here. So Adam, I think you're dying to say something here. I am. So the thing about... The thing about these cases is that humanitarian considerations are extremely important because there's there's discretion um, and there's also judgment. So you know, even if um, the circumstances look extraordinary, um, you could have a USCIS officer who just doesn't like granting these kinds of cases, and there's no way to know who's getting the case. So. It, you know, including the information about the hardship that there is to the H-1B employees' U.S. children, um, if there's anything about the work that perhaps the H-1B employee is doing or that the spouse is involved with and how that would impact that, um, anything like that are the things that you want to be including because it will help um, – it will help underscore the importance of the value of, you know, what happens when you say no versus what happens when you say yes. So when we file the H-1B petitions with these arguments, we generally will recommend that it be filed in regular processing. Um, this way, the employee could work for up to 240 days while the H-1B remains pending. Um, 
And prior to the end of the 240-day period, in these cases, that H-1B was approved. There, there may be a reason to use premium processing, um, just as there's sometimes reasons to keep it in regular processing. Um, but that's really a decision, and people often ask that question at the beginning of a case, but with something like this, that's really not a question um, that is easy for us to answer, that we're comfortable answering until we've prepared the case, because at that point, you've got a complete picture of what everything looks like, and that's really the best point at which you wanna know, and you wanna say, is this something that we want a faster decision, or is this something that we, it's okay to get, let immigration take its time? Thank you, Adam, and you know, as I was thinking, one of the thoughts that crossed my mind was, in that, you know, which I briefly meant to say earlier, but I got, you know, a little waylaid, was very similar to the non-protonc arguments that we make. There's obviously no specific format or method in to make some of these requests, you know, in that particular case that TJ just spoke about, which I think he can jump in just briefly to share a little bit more. We included an attachment to the H-1B forms. We explained the situation. We explained that at that time, there was a COVID pandemic downturn in the employer, uh, you know, the employer's business. The employee had lost the job, the, which was the I want H-1B job, which also was obviously the I-140 permanent job. And all of this documentary evidence was added to strengthen the case and that the failure to find the I-140 or apply for the immigrant visa within the one-year period in that example was truly beyond the control of the H-1B employee, right? And I think, TJ, you added a couple other things. Right. So, you know, um, in, in addition to explaining why the employee lost their job and couldn't file the, the 45 based on the I-140 job, you know, COVID, COVID pandemic, the downturn in the, the prior employer's business, we also um, added in specifically that at that time, uh, USCIS had indicated that, um, you know, uh, being out of status, things like that, due to COVID pandemic, was considered an extraordinary circumstance. Um, so we reiterated here that this is a lower standard. This is just circumstances beyond your control. It's not extraordinary. So we said certainly if it's COVID that he couldn't file, it's, it meets the, the lower threshold of a, a, um, a circumstance beyond your control. Um, it's definitely extraordinary, so it certainly meets that lower you know, requirement. Um, we also, and, and I think this is really important to do, is is to show that the employee has already started the, the labor certification process for the new employer. No matter what stage you're in, show that. Because the, the reason behind this, you must file the 45 with one a year, is because they don't want someone to come in, have their perm filed in 2005, then use that for the rest of their life to just be an H-1B holder and never have the intent to adjust. The AC-21 rules for these extensions were with the thought that you're going to file your 485 and become a permanent resident. So we certainly wanted to, in that situation, highlight, yes, the employer has started the labor certification process for this employee. Now, they haven't been able to file it yet because at that time, prevailing wage determinations were taking nine months, a year. They're taking forever. So don't, don't hold that against this, this individual. Um, so that's another thing we want to throw in there. And I think it's very important to throw in um, when you have this, this particular fact pattern. Excellent points, excellent arguments, excellent examples, uh, you know, for sharing all of these. And as, you know, to try to kind of conclude and wrap up, because we always try to be sensitive that you're busy uh, uh, professionals, uh, is that these success stories really underscore our determination, our commitment to not 
just navigate complex immigration laws, rules, challenges, practicalities that we see, but show our compassion, our creativity, our innovative approach, uh, our knowledge to help achieve the goals for individuals and companies and families. And through all of these strategies, through putting our heads together, we've not only resolved, uh, made arguments like the non-proton, the no-fault adjustment V2, but also what some may consider to be comparatively run-of-the-mill, but which are really not, because extensions past the sixth year when green card, uh, you know, your priority date has been current for over a year, getting that approval is very difficult, but Murthy Law Firm has been getting those approvals. Again, a testament to the exceptional and extraordinary legal team that is determined to fight for our clients and their success. So our goal always is to emphasize each circumstance, each client, each case, each family, leverage legal arguments while leaving in factual points and humanitarian considerations whenever possible. And again, this reflects our dedication to taking care of every single person, every single client, so that they have the best opportunity to pursue the American dream. Uh, again, on behalf of Adam Rosen, our Assistant Managing Attorney, TJ, the Coordinator in our Non-Immigrant Department, the entire Muthi Law Firm team, we want to thank you for joining us today. Please don't wait till the matter becomes a crisis. Come to us proactively, come to us in the beginning, but if there are issues, we certainly would be a privilege and honor for all of us to help solve that problem and take good care of you and your um, family. With that, I hope to wish all of you a very happy new year and thank you for everything that you do to create, to help the economy by working hard, by creating jobs. And we wish you and your family a very, very, very happy, successful, and good new year. Have a good day. Bye-bye.